Well, amen. What a song. Amen. That was good. And they did a great job on it. Praise the Lord. That was awesome. Well, take your Bible. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're in our Ecclesiastes study here. And um, we're going to go ahead and look at chapter 5 today. We're really not going to spend a lot of time in the whole chapter. We're going to spend most of the time in verse 1. And so <clears throat> let's go ahead and take a look at uh, chapter 5, though. And um, let's just read uh, through that chapter a little bit, and then we'll go from there. <clears throat> Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth. Let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through a multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools, pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error Wherefore should God be angry at the voice, thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diversity, diverse vanities. But fear thou God. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth. There be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. What good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There's a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to hurt their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. What profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? In his days also he eateth in darkness. He hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Now Solomon has <clears throat> tried a variety of ways to find satisfaction, to embrace fulfillment and purpose in his life. He has sought numerous avenues to do that. 
He's turned to pleasure, prosperity, power, prestige, and even philosophy. And with every single attempt that he makes, he's left feeling empty and unfulfilled. See, all is vanity or emptiness is the conclusion that he comes to. Now, we understand that he's a man. We get it that he's seeing it from the perspective of a a fleshly person. I understand that. And we have talked about the fact that God has a purpose for your life and he has a plan for your life. And as a result of that, it's not necessarily empty or vain or, or without fulfillment and satisfaction. However, if we look at it from common man, if we look at it from a lost person's perspective, we ask ourselves, what in the world am I here for? And what is the point of all this suffering in the end? It's all for nothing. And this is the conclusion that Solomon is coming to as he addresses it and seeks fulfillment in so many different places in the world, so many different types of means by which to fulfill that. And again, he never finds fulfillment, never finds satisfaction. He says all is vanity and all is emptiness. Now he turns to another means in hope of obtaining satisfaction and fulfillment. He now turns to religion. And again, he longs to have that void within filled in his life. And there is indeed a void that is in every person's life. A void in which only one can fill that void. And that is Jesus Christ. So the world seeks night and day to have that void filled. They create, they they scheme, they plan, they do all they can to somehow find something or someone that can fill that void. Solomon is on that journey. He is in search of fulfillment and satisfaction. He's longing to have that void filled. Not just temporarily, not just overnight, not just in the last week or two or the last month or two, or even in the the purchase or the obtaining of some item or thing and saying, boy, I feel so good now. No, that is fleeting. But he's saying, I want something that fills me, completes me. I'm seeking that which presently is lacking. And so he turns to even religion. And he addresses the vanity of popular religion. And he'll offer a little bit of instruction in religious matters for us tonight. And primarily we're going to focus our attention in verse 1. And he goes on to share a few things here and there. And of course the whole chapter is not necessarily directed specifically at religion. But we see him addressing that issue as one more thing he's seeking. To fill that void in his life. And so tonight... We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, basically verse 1. And I want to note a couple of things. He's going to address conduct in the church, if you will. He'll note this uh, idea or address this idea of concentration. And, And finally, as we come to a close, to some degree, he's going to address this issue of, I'll find it here in a second, consideration. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then we'll do that. Father, we thank you for this time together and we need you and We pray that you would be glorified. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather tonight and to be a part of this communion celebration as we recognize and remember the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood. Lord, tonight now for these next few moments, may our hearts be stirred and encouraged and even inspired that, Father, we would be the believers we ought to be.
May you do the work in our life that's necessary and needful. May we not live a life of vanity. May we live a life of fullness, completeness, life with purpose, purpose that extends long, long after the grave but goes on into eternity. <clears throat> we'll thank you. We'll praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. So he addresses this issue of conduct in the church. Notice in verse 1, right off the bat, he says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Keep thy foot. I mean, the term kind of connects man's ordinary life with his moral and religious life. He's saying, keep thy foot. Our behavior should be consistent with our profession is what he's really saying. You're going to go to the house of God. You ought to be living it outside the house of God. It's not enough just to go to the house of God. And Solomon, he's addressing these issues. And I remember reading about a a Sunday school teacher. And this Sunday school teacher asked her class of first graders if anyone could describe a Christian. A little boy quickly raised his hand and he said, Christians are nice people who never complain, argue, or talk back. He then added, my daddy's a good Christian, but my mommy isn't. Solomon is addressing this issue of of consistency in our life, where the profession itself is not enough. There has to be some activity. There has to be something that reflects on it. It's not enough to just simply go through the motions. See, we need to be careful concerning our conduct because we, we need to remember who we are and where we're going. Do you realize that you're a child of God? Look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 12. You and I are children of God. That's an amazing title, really. Now listen, I get it, and, and I know that you know, there's so many times and so many things that we, we take for granted, but really think about that concept for a moment. Literally the child of the Creator God. That's an amazing title. Notice what it says here in John 1, 12. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power... To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, then you are a child of God. Because see, the ability or the uh, opportunity to become a child of God is not because you have done something to earn it or you've had the power to overcome something in your life. Literally, the only reason you're a child of God is because of His power. And we know according to the book of Peter that it's His power that keeps us as well. John 1.12, you're the child of God. But not only that, we need to be always remembering that we are citizens of heaven. And in Philippians 3.20, the Bible says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word conversation there has to do with that actions of a citizen. And the idea here is that that our conversation or our our words and our actions and our deeds uh, ought to reflect our citizenship. That's exactly what's being spoken of and addressed here in the passage. And and so when, when... Solomon looks at religion, he, he goes and he, he looks right off the bat and he says, keep thy foot when thou goest in the house of God. Make sure that your moral and make sure that your, your, uh, your religious life is, is equal to your profession. You say you're a Christian, then look like one, act like one, live like one. 
Because you are a child of God. Because you're a citizen of heaven. Because you're an ambassador for Christ and his kingdom. Look, if you would, in Philippians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. <clears throat> Boy, we need to be careful with our conduct. We need to keep our foot, so to speak. Keep thy foot. Be careful where you go. Be careful what you do. Be careful what you say. Why? Because you're a child of God. Because you're a citizen of heaven. Because you're an ambassador for Christ in his kingdom. Look what it says here in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. You say, well, that's good for the Apostle Paul, but not for me. I'm sorry, but unfortunately, as we look through the rest of the Word of God, we are going to find, and it's not unfortunate, but it might be for some, the reality is is that we are all representing Christ. We are all citizens of another kingdom, and we are here as ambassadors. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. And although the apostles may have been able to say this with great confidence, I I dare say each and every one of us can. We are ambassadors. We represent our king and his kingdom. And how we live our lives and how we act and how we, we speak matters today. And we come to church and to simply walk into the doors and take a seat is not enough. And Solomon says, I've seen all too often this kind of portrayal. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've experienced it in my own life even, I'm sure he's saying. Where a person walks into the house of God but is not truly keeping their foot. They're allowing themselves to stray maybe on the outside, but when they're in church, they sure look the part. Hey, listen, we're children of God. We're citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors for Christ and his kingdom. Finally, you're a possession of the king. So am I. I mean, why in the world should we be careful concerning our conduct then? Why should we keep our foot, so to speak, in the house of God? Because we're possessions of the king. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Powerful, powerful passage. Look at this. Can you imagine if this was all made up? How ridiculous would I be standing up here saying all this? This is all made up. Wasn't true. The apostles pulled the wool over all our eyes. They gave their lives. All of them gave their lives because they knew this was a hoax. They knew this was a fake. They knew that Jesus never rose again. They just gave their lives so that one day I would stand up here and look like a fool. See, I don't believe that happened. See, I believe the word of God is indeed his word. I'm convinced that there is a heaven, there is a hell. I believe that there is Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I do believe that if we'll live our lives as God intended, there's a payoff in the end. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? No, you're not. I like that. What? With that question mark. What? Huh? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Notice again, sometimes we run through that phrase so quickly we miss what it says. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. The Holy Ghost, which is in you. Think about that. I mean, the Holy Ghost, who is the Holy Ghost according to Acts chapter 5? 
It's God. He's, he's the third person of the Trinity. And 1 John tells us that these three are one. It literally means that God lives inside you then. And he lives inside of me. He goes on to say, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Before we get haughty, before we get arrogant, before we become prideful and somehow think that we did something to earn, deserve, or, fa- or, or, or receive this thing. No, we did nothing. Nothing. We have it of God. It's all because of Him. And not our own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. I don't know what you've purchased lately. Maybe you went and got a gallon of milk at the store. Possibly you went and got an ice cream cone. We took a bunch of kids from the bus to Sweet Frog today. I'll probably recover from that in a month. That wasn't bad at all. No, I'm joking, really. But, but honestly, you purchase something. Everything comes with a price then. You know, often we talk about our salvation as being free. It's a gift, and it is. But it wasn't free for everyone. It cost somebody big time. And in this case, we see it. For ye are bought with a price. Let me tell you something. I don't know how much... Jesus Christ, how much God in flesh was worth. I don't know how much it was, how much it's worth for him, the, literally the God of heaven, to be separated from his own father himself in a sense to boom. I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. When you talk about that cup, it wasn't just the pain, the suffering, the agony on the cross. It was primarily the separation that would come between the son and his father, the, the only begotten. And you say, how are they one then? Listen, I don't have all the answers on that. We take that by faith to a degree. That's a mystery, the Bible says. But it's true. You say, well, no, it's true. It's Bible. I don't know how much that's worth. But it seems like it'd be a lot more expensive than anything I could buy on earth. Do you realize the price that God, the Heavenly Father, and the Son and even the Holy Ghost paid for you. Do you realize that? I mean, do we really comprehend how much it costs for our sin to be paid for on Calvary? And he goes on to say here, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So basically we're bought, right? We're purchased. That makes us a possession then. And I know today we don't like stuff like that. You know, I'm my own person. I'm going to live my own life. I want to go my own direction. I've got my own dreams and aspirations and future to consider. Listen, I'm bought with a price and so are you. That means, therefore, that it's not really our future. It's his already. He does with us as he pleases. And when a child of God takes it upon themselves to go their own direction, do their things their own way, as they perceive and as they plan and as they think, what a tragedy that is. We're stealing what's not ours. If one of your children came into the house at some point and took your wallet, sir, off of the, the TV or off of the, 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 the um, TV stand or maybe wherever it is, the kitchen table or wherever you keep it, and pulled out 
some money and took a 20, took a four, took $50 bill out maybe. You say, I've never had 50s. But anyway, took a 20, a 5, a 2, and some change. I don't know. You'd call that stealing. And you'd go to your child if you did catch them and you'd say, hey, listen, don't ever do that again. That's stealing. Get across the couch. You'd discipline them. You'd take care of it. You'd do what you have to do because you've got to break that bad habit because stealing's a very bad thing. Let me give you a piece of advice. If somebody can steal from you, they can lie to you. If they can lie to you, they will steal from you. Just a piece of advice. Someone says, my kids are kind of lying a little bit. You better break them of that because pretty soon they'll be stealing from you. I'm just saying we need to understand that's stealing. Hey, by the way, this is not mine to do with as I please. What, I go to God's kingdom or I go to God's uh, dresser and I take his wallet off and I pull that money out. In a sense, I'm taking it from him. I'm stealing myself from him because I'm really his property. I have no right to do with myself as I choose. He's purchased me with a price. He bought me with his shed blood. A Sunday school teacher was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. Why do people call me a Christian? The man asked. After a moment's pause, one of the youngsters said, well, maybe it's because they don't know you. (laughs) Maybe it's because they don't know you. Do you know, it's a funny thing. Children know the truth. They see it. You know, we're the only ones that pretend to ourselves or try to convince ourselves that we're something we're not. Everybody around us sees it. He addresses conduct. He says, keep thy foot. Listen, make sure that you realize and remember who you are. And and that ought to affect your conduct, not only in the house of God, but everywhere you go. You're a child of the king. You're a citizen of heaven. You're an ambassador for Christ in his kingdom. You're a possession of the king. We need to keep that in mind. We need to remember that consistently and continually. When we're at work or at school or at play... Wherever we're at, whether it's vacation or where it might be, it's funny, my wife was telling me she was at the store the other day and just happened to be walking through the grocery store. She was in a hurry. She said, I really didn't want to run into anybody because whatever, I don't want to go into it, but she didn't think she looked nice. Said, my hair, blah, blah, blah. You know how that is, ladies. I've been, I, I've been losing my mind because I've been wanting a haircut for the last two or three weeks. I mean, my hair is just growing like crazy. Amazing, I'm starting to curl up. I have naturally curly hair. And uh, so, nonetheless, I, I'm planning on getting a haircut, but my barber it takes a couple days a week off, and I keep forgetting when that is, and I always go the wrong days. So I think I have it nailed down now. But, but, but she runs, it's amazing. How do you, she runs into somebody that's like, hey. She's like, who, what? These folks had attended our church, I mean, years ago. Years. You don't know who's watching. I don't know. But they're watching. And our lives matter. And how we live and act and what we do matters. And Solomon's just saying, listen, this religious thing, he says, "You you need to be very careful in your conduct. 
in the house of God and even outside of it. So we need to be careful. Number two, he says, he addresses concentration. Again, in verse one, he goes, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. How many times have you sat in a service and you realized that you weren't listening? How many times have you knelt to pray and along the way you realize, I'm not really praying anymore? I'm just saying, sometimes we lose concentration. Sometimes we lose our focus. That's, that's, that's natural. But it's something we must war with. It's something we must fight against. We can't allow it to take over us. We've got to control it. And he addresses concentration in church when he says, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Proverbs 21, 27 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? Can you imagine coming to church with a wicked mind? I can. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly having battles in my mind. This idea that we're so perfect and we're so clean. We better make sure we're on confession ground. We better make sure we're always in communion with God and ready to say, Lord, oh boy, I'm sorry. I'll tell you, I was so angry at that person or Lord, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I thought the worst thought about them. Wicked minds. Walk in the door of the church and sadly enough, you start comparing yourself to others and you look at other people that might even be what appears to be in a better situation than you and you're like, look at them, think they're all that. That's a wicked mind. That's a wicked mind. That's that's not Christ-like in the least. And yet we'll offer our sacrifices to God. We bring them to the altar even. We'll turn around and give our tithes and our offerings. We'll go ahead and, and, and give ourselves in service to God. Sacrificing time, talents, treasures. 1 Samuel 15, 22 The Bible says, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. I mean, here's Saul and him, the people of God, and they're fighting Amalek, and they're told to destroy all, everything, completely, annihilate. And yet when it's all said and done, they save the best And when, it was, when, when, when confronted by the prophet, the man of God, Saul ultimately begins to defend his position. The people did this and the people did that. But I want you to know that we're going to give the best things in sacrifice to God. That's why we didn't destroy everything. That's one of the reasons. Because we wanted to give God the very best. And the prophet says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? What are you going to substitute for obedience? Saul says, I'm going to substitute something for for simple obedience, Samuel. 
I'm going to substitute the very best I can come up with. I'm going to take the spoils of the land. I'm going to give you the very best. I'm going to somehow impress you with my sacrifice. I'll substitute this sacrifice for obedience. You know what? If we're not careful, we do that. A young man, young lady gets called into the ministry and instead of obeying God, they go ahead and say, I'll give you sacrifices. A couple gets convicted about running a bus route. Well, I'll just give a little more money. I'll involve myself in Sunday school, but I don't want to do the buses. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Oh, I, I know I ought to be in that nursery working, but I'll sing in the choir. That'll suffice. That'll, that'll get God off my back. Oh, sacrifice instead of obedience. You get where I'm going with this? I'm just saying that sometimes if we're not careful, we kind of bargain with God. And that's exactly what Saul was doing in a sense. And yet the prophet confronts him and says, hey, wait a second. Hath God as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. See, we need to approach God's house with an attitude of humility, an attitude of quiet respect and awe, not in pride, not in a, with a haughty spirit. No, we, we, we don't need to be quick to make vows or commitments or an outward show of piety. That's not necessary. That's not what God's seeking. See, we don't want to offer the sacrifice of fools. Because, see, the sacrifice of fools, that's an offering of a godless person. And although we may not be godless in the sense that we're Christians, we're saved, we don't need to live or act like the godless either. See, God's not impressed with our mere benevolence. See, there's not one thing that you own, that you possess, that God needs. And there's nothing I have or possess that God... Everything that I have has been given to me by Him. It's not like He needs what I have to give Him. It's crazy, isn't it, to think about that? Now, again, what do we appreciate? I mean, honestly, have you ever bought your child an ice cream cone? And that child comes back and says, Daddy, do you want some? And you go, oh, that's so cute. Oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, oh, it makes me feel so good. Giving back what I've given to you. Do you know how precious it is when God's children go, Daddy, You want some? Boy, that's precious to God. Just like it's precious to a dad or a mom. When we know what they have was given to them by us. I mean, if we want, we go buy our own ice cream cone. We don't need theirs, but there's something about taking a lick off that ice cream cone that brings great pleasure to us. Boy, when we hand God something that he's given back to us and we say, oh God, let me just give you this of my life. Let me give you this of my possessions. Let me surrender this and sacrifice that out of a heart of humility and appreciation. It does something for God. I believe that, that encourages God. That impresses God. That right there touches his heartstrings.
Finally, he addresses consideration. He goes on here in the passage. He says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they, those who give the sacrifice of fools, consider not that they do evil. When's the last time you literally came to grips with the thought that I have done something evil? When's the last time you, you, you actually found yourself saying, man, that was evil of me? Do you know most of the time we convince ourselves that we're really good people? That we're really godly. We're really trying, and because I'm trying, obviously I'm a good person. I don't do anything real bad like some people. Wait a second. If you offer the sacrifice of fools... If you're living a two-faced life, if you're trying to give God something and yet you're not giving it in total obedience, you're trying to somehow bargain with God. Then he says, guess what? You haven't considered that you do evil. See, there... We, if we're not careful, we somehow think that we can please God with our formal acts of devotion. We can go through the motions, sign. We can kind of fool God the way we fool everyone else. Listen, my standard is not nearly as high as God's, is it? I guarantee you that. I can understand hurt and heartache. I can see why people would do things that are inappropriate or wrong at times. I even understand, and I can look at someone and say, listen, I can't agree with what you're doing, but my heart goes out to you. My standard isn't as high as God's. See, God just wants obedience. God just wants us to obey Him simply. It's not that complicated with God. It's not a matter of how big you are, how small you are, how tall you are, how short you are. It's not a matter of whether you measure up to the world's eyes or your family's eyes or or the preacher's eyes. He wants you to measure up in his eyes. He just wants you to obey him. And I do think more than not, if we were honest with ourselves, we are more evil than we would ever admit because we so many times are going through the motions and our heart is not where it belongs. We're going to take communion in just a moment. Please don't take communion if you're not trying to live your life for Christ. If, if you're not honestly saying, Lord, if there's something that's wrong in my life, I'm at least open to it. I, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm not perfect, Lord. There's no way that I I can even come close. However, you know my heart. I do want to be someone that pleases you with my life. If you can't say, I want to please the Lord with my life, I wouldn't take communion. Not according to the Bible, I wouldn't. Many are sickly and sleep because they take it unworthily. Because what is he saying? He's saying, you know what? We're not keeping our foot. He's saying, you know what? We're not actually concentrating 
and, and, and we're, not, we're not finding ourselves considering the reality here that if we are simply going through a ritual, if we're just living this life, if we're just coming to church dressed nice and acting nice, sitting in a seat, but our mind isn't where it belongs and we're not doing our best to conform to his personage and trying to be in the image of Christ and allowing him to, 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 to move us and to mold us and to make us to what he wants us to be, then actually he's saying, listen, we're just, we're going through the mud. We're playing a game. The Bible discusses it very clearly. Look at Matthew 23. We're going to end this real quick. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Look at how he describes this situation here. I'm telling you, if we're not careful, we are so evil and we convince ourselves that we are so righteous. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how godly you are. I don't care if you're the pastor of the church. You're just a human being. And you are going to war with your mind. You're going to war with your flesh. You're going to war with everything that the world says, that the world's involved. I mean, you can't go anywhere without dealing with issues. We've got to constantly be surrendering and constantly presenting ourselves and constantly dying to self and constantly giving ourselves to Christ. Because no matter where you go, someone's saying, give me a peace. Let me take a piece back. I'll exchange something. You give me a piece of you, and I'll give you some of this. And the Lord's going, I bought you with a price. You don't have the right to make that decision. You only obey me. You allow me to have preeminence in your life. Don't put yourself back on the throne. Don't take me off the throne. Don't think what you shouldn't. Don't do what you shouldn't. Don't go where you shouldn't. Don't be what you shouldn't be. Allow me to have control. Otherwise, we may be offering the sacrifice of fools in a sense. And that is evil. That's not just not wise. That's not just human. That's not just struggling. That's evil. According to Solomon, I think Solomon's a pretty wise guy. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he's wise, and he's a guy. He's not a wise guy. But anyway, <clears throat> Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Outwardly holy, but inwardly wicked. Watch, what it, look at how Jesus deals with this. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye make clean the outside of the cup, and of the platter. But within they are full of extortion and excess. Wow. I don't know. Have you, have you ever gone to a restaurant? And, and you look at your cup and it looks fine. They pour something in it like water or something. And there's stuff floating in it. The inside was full of something already. Before they put the water in. It's like, wow, you cleaned the outside, but the inside wasn't clean. That's disgusting, right? I don't know about you, but I'd prefer not to drink that cup of water. That's exactly what he's talking about in a sense. Thou blind, verse 26, Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. You know what I, I kind of get? Is, is that... We still somehow believe that we can clean the outside up without dealing with the inside. 
See, that, that's what we think. You know, we, if I, I can clean the outside up without dealing with the inside. That's, that's what Pharisees do. But he says, look, look what he says. It's amazing. He says, thou blind Pharisee, verse 26, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. See, we're never truly clean unless we start on the inside. That's, that's the lie the devil tells us. You can be clean out here just having a difficult time inside. Nobody needs to know the difference. But the truth is, God says, no, I, I know the difference. You, you can't clean the outside up until you clean the inside up, he says. And you know what most people try to do? Clean the outside up. You know how I know that? Let me tell you how it works. They come in and counsel with me. You know what they want to do? They want to clean the outside up. I want my marriage fixed. I want my children in line. I want my emotions fixed. I want this in order. I want my finances in order. I want this done. Can you help me get this in order? Get this in order. Get this in order. Get this in order. What are they talking about? Cleaning the outside up. Well, let's talk about the inside for a minute. Uh, That's uncomfortable. That means change. That means I got to change. I want everybody else around me to change. I want my circumstance to change. I want my, I want, I want the, the, the situation to change. I don't want to have to change myself. That's, that's a little bit too much. See, most people just want the outside clean. And they don't understand it doesn't happen without starting on the inside, according to the Word of God. He goes on to say in verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is where we see this word hypocrite. See, we like to believe other people are hypocrites. We don't want to look at ourselves that way. You know who the greatest, who, who, who spots hypocrites better than anybody else? Your children. They see it. Next, your spouse. It could even go spouse than kids if you really want to. But I'm telling you, it's a mess. And sadly enough, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. You can't go on like this forever. Sooner or later, you're going to run into a brick wall. You better deal with it. He goes on to say, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You can fool the general population. You can get over on the church family. You can deal with that. You can. We all can. But hold on. What a vivid and yet grotesque picture we see before us here. Think about this. The outside is beautiful, but within there's nothing but decaying, putrefying bodies on the inside. What a disgusting picture that is. Is that disgusting? You say, I, would, I don't even like to go to graveyards, let alone go somewhere. They were doing an autopsy. Forget that. that just, I, I would, no way, dude. He says, that's what's inside some of us. Dead men's bones. Death. 
nothingness, emptiness. Wow, how differently God sees us than the world does or even our friends and families at times. Solomon's looking at this situation. He's saying, listen, even religion can be vain. Even religion can just be a waste of time in the end. You better realize, that you better address your conduct, he says, in the house of God. You better address this, this thought of, of concentration. You better address this issue of consideration. You need to realize it's serious business. We don't have time to finish it up, but that's good enough, I think. May God help us as believers to really take the time to, to, to look at our lives, our hearts, deep beyond, beyond the surface. Hey, Isaac, do you, do you, think, do you think I'm a, a good preacher? Do you think I'm a good man? Do you think that I'm a, a good person? That's not so hard, is it? But see, God don't look at me like he does. See, he can only see this. And what he's looking at is unbelievable. <laughs> however, however, God looks past this. He sees in here, doesn't he? And see, what he sees may not be the reality. See, the truth is you don't know if what he said is reality or not. You don't know that for sure. All you have is what you see. Only I know and God knows really. What about your life? What does God see? What's he see tonight as he looks over the portals of heaven and he looks into the depths of your heart and soul tonight? You have me fooled probably if you're not everything that you appear to be. But just because you appear that way to me doesn't mean that's how God sees you. Or how you know and see yourself. Now you can fool yourself for a while. But tonight, why don't we ask God and say, Lord, before I take that communion, is there something I need to look at? Do I need to see something differently about myself? Am I really doing my best to be obedient? Or do I just really just go through the motions and don't give it much thought at all? It can get dangerous when we fail to really let God search our hearts. May God help us to really take the time to have the inkling, to really desire to want to expose the evil. The evil that was there as a result of the atomic nature that has been indeed eradicated by the new man but this old flesh still runs around trying to have preeminence in our life. 
We need to be very careful, don't we? Because that dead man will raise his ugly head up again, time and time again. May God help us to be the believers we ought to be. If you don't know Christ today as your Savior, you need to settle that right now. Don't leave here without knowing Christ as your Lord. Don't leave here without knowing that you are a child of God, that you're in the family of God, that you have an eternal home in heaven, that you're an ambassador for Christ now too, and that He lives in you and He purchased you with His own blood, that He paid for your sin too. Hey, He died on the cross because He loves you and wants to pay for your sin, but you have to be willing to accept the gift of eternal life. Won't you trust Him? Won't you receive Him tonight? Father, we thank You for this time we've had around Your Word. Bless us now and use us. We need You. 